Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. At 2 p.m. on December 5th, 1945, five U.S. torpedo bombers departed Fort Lauderdale in Florida in the United States. Designated Flight 19 because they were the 19th flight of the day, their purpose was simple. The Second World War was over, so it was just a routine navigational training flight, home by dinner. But these aircraft and the men inside them would never make it home. In fact, they would never be seen again. So what happened to the men of Flight 19? I'm your host, James Rogers, and to help us find out, I've invited David O'Keefe back onto the podcast. You'll know David from his work on Dieppe and his many books, including Seven Days in Hell. But the mystery of Flight 19 intrigued him so much that he put together an expert team to go out and find the wreckage. There was just one issue. The aircraft came down in the infamous Bermuda Triangle. And as you'll hear, what David and the team found next was simply unbelievable. Enjoy. Hi, David. Great to have you back on the podcast. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you? Love, love being back. This is great. Yeah, well, no, it's good to have you on. And, and every time we have you on, we're usually talking about an anniversary or a new take on your core area of research, which is the Dieppe raid of August 1942, that disastrous raid. But we're mixing things up a little today on the Warfare Podcast because I think one of the best things about being a military historian is that your research can take you into some pretty strange and unforeseen directions. And I guess it's with that weird word of strange in mind that I want you to tell us a little bit about your latest work on the Bermuda Triangle. In fact, maybe start with telling us what the Bermuda Triangle actually is. I always say that historians are kind of like accidental tourists of life. You never know where you're going to end up, particularly as a military historian. You know what it's like when you go through files, there's stuff that you find. And then next thing you know, it launches you on a new investigation. Well, of course, this one brought me into contact with the infamous Bermuda Triangle. And of course, the Bermuda Triangle is an area off, essentially off of Florida, which is a triangle that goes from the Bahamas down to Puerto Rico and then back up to Florida. It is not a truly defined area. It kind of shrinks and grows as the stories go with it, as we find out. But it has become legendary in the last 50 or 60 years. And essentially, it became legendary in the first place 
because it was intended to be, you know, controversial. It was a series of writers starting in the 50s and 60s decided that, well, wait a second, there's some anomalies in this area. There's a lot of traffic, a lot of disappearances of ships and aircraft. And as such, they were started to cobble this together into what I would argue would be legendary proportions. So part of my interest in all this was getting in and kind of, well, I don't know, myth busting is the right way, but at least doing a proper investigation to see what's in there, if there is anything. So in theory, there are some people who believe in the Bermuda Triangle. It exists, all its mysteries, its powers, and everything else. And there are others who just completely laugh it off. And, you know, I'm walking right into the middle of that, along with an incredible team. And we're just keeping our mind open, and we're just following the evidence and seeing where the evidence takes us. Well, let's touch on some of those theories about what might happen in the Bermuda Triangle. Because from everything I've heard, it's everything from aliens to rogue 100-foot waves that snap ships in half to different magnetic forces that send compasses going spiralling. There's loads of different theories around why there's been this occurrence of so many different wrecks and sinkings that have happened around the region. Are there any that I've missed there? Oh, God, there's probably a few. There's vortexes. There's massive (laughs) methane bubbles that will come up and swallow a ship. I think you ticked off most of the boxes when it came to aliens. I mean, most people probably think more of the close encounters, you know, interpretation where it's aliens were coming down and trying to make contact with us. And for whatever reason, they don't really care about the rest of the world. They're focused on this particular area. (laughs) But that's really what everybody thinks about. When you say Bermuda Triangle, you're worried about flying into it, never coming out of it or sailing into it, never coming out of it. And without a doubt, there have been those accidents, whether it be on the sea or uh, whether it be in the air. And of course, that's how this whole piece of research started for me several years back, was I was looking into something connected with World War II, believe it or not. And that, of course, was right at the end of the war, about three months after the war ended, there was a routine training flight of five torpedo bombers, American Navy torpedo bombers, that were out on a navigational exercise. They flew out into the area for what would become the Bermuda Triangle. And they radioed in about two and a half hours after they left saying they were lost, that they needed direction, that they were arguing over where they were. The flight leader thought they were in the Gulf. Other members of the flight said, no, we're off of the east coast of Florida. And of course, then they were reporting that their instruments were not working, their compasses weren't working, etc. And then they were never seen again. And so as a result, this started the legend, if you will, of the Bermuda Triangle. And this was known as Flight 19, the infamous Flight 19, the 19th training flight of the day, which took off. Never landed, as far as we know, unless you watch Close Encounters, then we know where they are. But this is really what started it all in 1945. And then everybody started to go back and sort of throw a whole bunch of puzzle pieces, if you will, into the box top. And since then, everybody's been trying to make sense out of what, you know, this puzzle means or what this puzzle could reveal. I've looked into some of the files of Flight 19 in the past, and the official Navy report declared it was as if they had flown to Mars, which as official reports go, that's one for stoking the fire a little bit in terms of the controversies around it. But when you were doing your research into this, did you find much more details? I know that there was some reports that flights were sent out to try and find Flight 19, 
but they also went missing. Is that true, or is this now just getting carried away? No, actually, there is some truth to that. And I guess what happened was, and if you take a rational look at this and you go back and you piece together the timeline, and when I say that, we only have a certain amount of the documents from that time. We really need to get back into the archives and dig like crazy to be able to fill out the data pool. Because what we have now and what everybody's been working off of is what the Navy report contained. And that doesn't contain all the information from all the different naval and air and army installations up and down the eastern seaboard and into the Gulf. So in some cases, I don't know whether the Navy intended to do this, but there certainly was a cherry picking, if you will, of what was out there. So what we can see is that the flight, of course, did radio in and they said that they were lost. When that happened, it triggered the old submarine tracking system, which is amazing. The World War II direction finding Huff Duff, that's now being used at the end of the war for search and rescue. So what they were doing now was they were getting a direction fix on the aircraft as they were moving. And this is very difficult to do, even by World War II standards, uh, even by today in some cases. But in World War II, your margin of error is about 100 miles so, wow. you, well, now you can understand why it was so important to decrypt communications to find a submarine as opposed to just try to direction find, right? Because it's a big ocean out there. Anyway, so they were able to get a fix, okay, a fix for 1945, which put the flight east of Florida and about roughly about 100 miles off of Daytona Beach. And that was the last contact that they had with them. Now, the fascinating part was because of the protocol, it does not appear that anybody on the ground decided to send that fix to the aircraft in the skies. And if they did, there's no record of it ever being received. Now, that was very important because the pilots in the air were fighting with each other. They were arguing. And the problem was you have a training mission Four, four pilots are being trained and a flight leader. And the flight leader is arguing with the senior student who actually outranks him. So in the transcripts that were intercepted on the ground, you can hear them. No, we're here. Let's go east. No, we're here. Let's go west. And this argument is continuing. Now, obviously, if they got the information and said, look, the ground has fixed us and we're 100 miles off of Daytona, we probably wouldn't have a story today. Because they would have been able to turn west, fly 270, and either just pop down in the drink just off the coast when they ran out of fuel, or they would have made it back. But that doesn't seem to happen. And so the theory, is, there's a couple of theories. This is basically where Flight 19 breaks up into three possibilities. One is they continued on their course, which was northeast, and they ended up flying out into the Sargasso Sea, which is essentially, for all intents and purposes, the middle of the Atlantic, if you're in an aircraft at this time. Or they kept going up towards the eastern seaboard and more towards Georgia. Or there's a possibility, and again, it's a theory, that the argument led to the flight breaking up. And basically, everybody just went their own way. So there are possibilities, and I would say if we're just rank them, about 95%, I would say that they're out there somewhere in the water. But there is a very slight chance that some of them actually made it back to land. But the question is, why haven't they been heard of? Did they fly over Florida? It was a really bad night. There was a lot of cloud. It was dark. Florida's back then is not what Florida is like now. Within about 25 minutes of airtime, 30 minutes, you could fly right over the peninsula. 
and end up in the Gulf. So there's a whole bunch of these different theories. And unfortunately, we're not going to get any closer to the answer unless we get out onto the water and actually find the aircraft or as historians get into the archives and thicken up that data pool. Because there may be subsequent messages, subsequent fixes that the Navy didn't put in the report for whatever reason. And I have a feeling the report was more, um, it was done very hurriedly right at the end to sort of look, the war is over. Uh, this is a horrible accident. We know they're not coming back. Let's just get this over and done with. They weren't investigating it the way you and I as historians would investigate. And of course, although tragic, I mean, it's safe to say that once you get towards the end of the Second World War, it's not uncommon for flight accidents to happen during training. I mean, we know about so many tragic cases where this has taken place. So it's almost a run-of-the-mill kind of thing, whereas today it would, of course, be front-page news all around the world. But this is where it gets really interesting, David, because most historians here would go and get back in the archives and maybe one day try and save up to go and visit the site or get a boat and head out there and see if you can find something. But instead, uh, you make a phone call to the History Channel and uh, you go and get a full team together to go and search this thing down. So, who did you bring together? Well, originally, when we first started out, and I should tell you that there are two shows, one was The Hunt for Flight 19, which became the pilot for Bermuda Triangle into Cursed Waters, which has just finished its first season. We got our fingers crossed. We're waiting on word about season two. The ratings were nice and solid, so we're hoping. But originally, it was the team from Lone Wolf Productions down in Maine, and we put together, we have one of the best divers in the world, Mike Barnett, who is kind of our lead guy on all of this. He has been looking for the Martin Mariner, and you mentioned this earlier. There were, remember that there are 14 men on Flight 19 who go missing that night. There are also another 13 men on a search and rescue vessel, or search and rescue aircraft known as a Martin Mariner, which takes off from Florida and about a half an hour later disappears. There are reports of an explosion. There are sightings of some sort of ball of fire in the water, but no one has ever been able to find a trace of any of the aircraft from Flight 19, nor the Martin Mariner. So Mike Barnett has kind of set out on his mission to find the Martin Mariner. He's fully convinced that Flight 19 has flown off into the Atlantic deep, and it may be years, or if, if ever, we find them. But he believes that the Martin Mariner is somewhere off the coast of Florida. But the problem is, if you read the Navy report and you follow the trajectory of its path, which Mike has been doing and we did as a research team, there's no trace of it whatsoever. There isn't an engine to be found. There isn't a scrap. Nobody washed up. There were no bodies that washed up afterwards. And allegedly, it went down within about 20 or 30 miles off the coast. So you would assume there would be some sort of wreckage somewhere. So that's been one of the baffling things. And no search and rescue was sent out to try and look for them? Well, that was the problem. All the search and rescue were in the air looking for Flight 19. And right, so when this blew up, they had to make a decision and they did divert one of the aircraft that took off. There was actually two that took off from Banana River, two Martin Mariners. And the first one turned around. It was halfway up to Georgia and it turned around and came back to look for the first one. And you can imagine what it would be like to make that decision. In other words, okay, we've got one plane in the air. We've got two missing, well, more than two missing. We've got six missing aircraft. Five of them are, are supposedly together. One's on its own. You have to make that cruel decision. In other words, okay, Flight 19's been up too long. They're probably out of fuel. They're already down. 
we can get 14 guys who are close to shore. Let's come back. That's what they did, but they came up empty. They couldn't find anything. So these two disappearances are obviously linked and connected in the sense that, you know, it happened on the same day and they were involved in the same story. But the question is, what brought down the Martin Mariner and where is it right now? And in many cases, that may be the more intriguing of the stories because you would assume it's right at your fingertips. And so far, nothing. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser-known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So how do you start to plan for an investigation like this? Where do you start? Well, number one is to hit the archives and to, again, build up that data pool. Take a look at anything and everything. You have to take a look at all the reports that came out of the airfields where they took off. You have to take a look at weather reports. I mean, I'm even going into signals intelligence stuff and SARTAC. Because remember, we still have the apparatus for U-boat hunting. And a lot of it has been turned over to search and rescue. But at the same time, they're also still honing their craft in the area. 
And it's not just the Americans, because a lot of people tend to forget that the British are also playing in the Caribbean, as well as the Canadians. So there are three potential repositories, if you will, or areas of archives, and that's in Canada, Great Britain, and the U.S. Now, the vast majority will be in the U.S., but what you also have to do is expand that net wider. What you have to do is move away from the report. In other words, the report, the Navy report, has a certain amount of appendices, but they don't cover every single direction-finding station up and down the East Coast and into the Gulf. Again, I don't know whether it was intentional or not, but it seemed cherry-picked. So the idea would be to go back and find everything, and then we'll go from there and see where it leads us to. Now, that's one way. That's the idea of taking that approach is to narrow down where these aircraft could possibly be. Also, too, it's not just official sources in the sense of the government sources, but there's also maritime craft. There are also merchant vessels that are out on this night, and they record. As a matter of fact, the last sighting of the Martin Mariner is made by a tanker that happens to be going past and suddenly sees this ball of flame in the sky plummeting down. Everybody has assumed that has been that was the Mariner. So there are a lot of different areas that we can go back and take a look. Now, with that, then we get the team. And that's the fun part. Because Mike Barnett has been diving this area for about 30 years, and he has put together one heck of a map. All unknown shipwrecks or some sort of wreckage at the bottom. And most of them have not been checked. A lot of times he finds them from fishermen. He actually talks to fishermen. He's developed a fantastic rapport and they'll come back and say, okay, in this location, our net was snagged on something, but there's nothing down there from all our charts, but now we know there's something there. So he'll mark it on his map. Now, the other thing was the Challenger disaster in 1986. When the Challenger blew up the space shuttle, NASA went out and mapped the entire area under the water so they could find pieces of the Challenger. And as they did that, now that's been declassified. So now you've got all that data of this area that's been swept. And of course, they're picking up all these anomalies that are on the bottom. So you can imagine we've got this incredible treasure map that basically we are going to hit one by one. And it's going to take a long time. It's going to take multiple television seasons for sure, because we have to go through each one. And that's the brilliant part, because when Mike and Jimmy Gadonski, who is his partner, when they jump overboard and they go down, they have no clue what they're going to find. That's the fun part. That's the intriguing part, right? I mean, you know you're putting your hand into a bag full of puzzle pieces. You have no clue which one you're going to pull out. And this is the fascinating part. So... With that said, for our pilot, we also brought in Rob Kraft, who is one of the greatest undersea investigators in the world. I mean, this is a guy who had Paul Allen's boat, the Petrel, and basically has gone around the globe. He just found the USS Indianapolis. He found pretty much every American ship in Iron Bottom Sound off Guadalcanal and a whole bunch of others. I mean, Rob is a legend. And so he, we worked with him and his team and we brought in, and of course we had Mike and we had Jimmy and myself and Wayne Abbott, who we did war junk together. So I guess you could say in some ways, it's a bit of an all-star team coming together. And that's kind of what it takes to try to tackle something like this. Well, this is what we like to hear. We like to hear there's good research going into this, a clear plan and proper experts making a history TV show about a mystery that's yet 
to be solved. So I'm going to assume, David, that seeing as this was the pilot and season one has now aired, that, and this may not be a big spoiler, but uh, that you didn't find Flight 19. But did you come across anything that will help you in your investigation? Well, there's a lot of things. And as you know, as a historian, a lot of times it's what you can check off your list as opposed to necessarily what you find. And of course, I'll give you an example. Last March, Mike had a relatively big target on his map. He had no clue what it was, but it was in the flight path of the Martin Mariner. So it looked very promising. And on the map, and I believe it was some of the data that they got from NASA, it said propeller or something along those lines. In other words, so it seemed promising. And Mike had dived before on various other targets and found propellers, but most of them were single aircraft or single engine aircraft, things like this, what was left of them, like Corsairs and whatever else. But the Martin Mariner has pretty distinct engines and a design. So if there's anything left, we'll be able to identify it. So sure enough, they end up going down onto this target, which is supposed to be a propeller, and they don't find a propeller. As a matter of fact, they find something that kind of looks like a bright orange patio floor, which at first they had no clue what the heck this was. They started sort of gently uncovering it, and it was bright orange. And they realized definitely it was man-made. You could see the sharp angles. And they started uncovering more and more, and next thing you know, it was huge. It was almost like 20 by 20. And then they realized, wait a second, we've got a, some sort of piece of some sort of aircraft of sorts but it's not World War II. It seems to be relatively modern. Well, sure enough, we were able to figure out that this was part of the Space Shuttle Challenger. Oh, wow. That blew up in 1986, which had never been recovered. And it had been down there and either misfiled or somebody just screwed up on their interpretation of what the data was, thought it was a propeller. In reality, it was a large chunk from the under part of, I think it was either the left or the right wing. We're still waiting on confirmation of that. And that was absolutely incredible to have to stumble across as this accidental tourist, if you will. You know, as the Mike and Jimmy were just blown away. And of course, so were the team, because first of all, we didn't know what it was. And then when we realized what it was, we didn't really understand the significance of it at first. Historically, we were like, wow, the challenger. But then as the months unfolded, it was very big for NASA. It was very big for the space program. We interviewed shuttle pilots. And this was a real touchstone for them. So this was a very important piece to have. And so before we made the announcement, we had to get in touch with NASA. And they kind of took over. And they got in touch with the families. And we got the okay from all the Challenger crew families to be able to you know, break the story. And then we were told, okay, there's going to be a certain protocol you're going to have to follow. We didn't know what it was. All we knew was in November, we were going to break the story. And sure enough, about 11 o'clock the night before we made the announcement, or the announcement was made at 10 a.m., we got a rocket saying, here's the protocol for tomorrow. You will follow this to a T. And we're like, you've got to be kidding me. Like we've, I've made discoveries before, but nothing like this, right? Or been involved with these. And uh, it was like, okay, here's the thing. Nine o'clock. It's on Biden's desk at the White House. 9.30, it goes to Congress. 10 a.m., it goes back to NASA. NASA will make the announcement at 10.10, and at 10.15, you guys can talk about it. Wow. <laughs> so that was when you suddenly realize the enormity of what a seemingly insignificant piece at the bottom of the ocean off of Florida 
could possibly mean to people. Well, let's talk about its significance, David, because this is January 28th, 1986. The world is watching the Space Shuttle Challenger heading into space, and it breaks apart. It explodes midair 73 seconds into its flight, killing all seven crew members on board. So what you've found here is a literal piece of history, because like you say, NASA then scans the entire ocean looking for this. The families have been left without bodies to bury, without answers really of what entirely went wrong. And as a result of you trying to look for Flight 19, you've stumbled across an arguably, well, perhaps not more important part of history, but one that will affect the lives of those who are still around today and provide answers for them. Well, I think, you know, getting back to what you just mentioned, I mean, a lot of people back in the 1980s were sitting around watching this happen live. I mean, space shuttle launches were massive TV events. And I remember it was early, you know, relatively early or late morning, I guess it was. I remember watching it and like everybody else was, and it was fascinating and very significant because of Krista McAuliffe, the teacher, the first civilian that was going to go up into space. And of course, uh, you know, a lot of affinity for her. And then of course, watching this, and as you mentioned, 73 seconds in, you suddenly went, "Uh uh-oh, something was wrong. You weren't exactly sure what it was. And then there was this horrible pause that horribly pregnant pause when it's dawning on everybody that this is a massive disaster and nobody has found the words yet to articulate it. That was the horrible part. And then, of course, seeing they had the cameras on the families that were all gathered. And, of course, her family standing there and they're starting to look up and they're talking to each other, trying to make sense. What's going on? What's going on? Is there something wrong? And then suddenly the dawning realization coming in. And that is a picture that sticks with you. And I think the key with the Challenger was that kind of like Pearl Harbor, Kennedy, 9-11, you remember what you were doing, where you were at that moment. It's a signpost in history. And so as a result, it was one of those ones that I suppose in some cases we kind of put behind us and just finding this piece just opened it all up again. And that's part of the amazing journey of what we do as historians. So what's going to happen to the wreckage, the remnants that you've found? I mean, this could potentially be in in many ways a grave site. You don't know what remains around there, if there are any. You don't know what incredibly important pieces there are of the Challenger that are vital to, to national security and to science. Especially during the 1980s, this would have been a kind of a Cold War issue, given the part of the world that you're in. And, you know, you're not a million miles away from Cuba and everything else that's going on. Do you know what's going to happen to the wreckage that you found? Well, it's in NASA's hands, as you can imagine. After it was, I think it was the Columbia disaster, there were new laws enacted because sadly there were people who were taking bits and pieces of Columbia and selling them on eBay. So the government stepped in and put a federal law in. So remember that anything to do with the space program and particularly the shuttles is high priority and it belongs to the government. So there's no proprietary rights if you find it out there. It belongs already to the American government. So you have to be very careful with what you do. So as a result, we've turned it over to NASA. Now, with that said, we've put in our wish. And our wish is that this part be raised and brought to the Kennedy Space Center and put up as a memorial for the seven that died and perhaps even to all the others who have died during the space exploration period. That's what I would love to see. And I think the entire team would like to see that. But 
we're not really sure what the protocol is from there from NASA's perspective. It sounds like an incredibly fitting and moving memorial if that was able to happen. Have you spoken to any of the families about this? Is there wider support for this? Well, certainly we contacted all the families, at least the team did, and we were given the okay. As a matter of fact, the commander, his wife understood it. She basically said that, look, there's a, you know, we understand how painful it is, you know, even all these years later to us personally, but we also understand how important this is, not only for the history of, as she said, put it, the United States of America, but more importantly, the world and for mankind. So in that sense, we never got the feeling that we were intruding or that this was somehow unwanted. As a matter of fact, they were appropriately appreciative, if that makes sense. In other words, it was their appreciation was well gauged. In other words, it wasn't over the top, but they understood the importance. And to be honest with you, I have to thank them for that, for being able to take it that way, because they understood the overall importance of this. Well, if you can find Challenger, one of the greatest mysteries towards the end of the 20th century in season one, then I'm sure you can solve the mysteries of the Bermuda Triangle for season two. And, you know, I have no doubt you'll probably end up finding the aliens as well, David. But in all seriousness, you do have unfinished business to get out there and to find the men of Flight 19. So will we see a season two? What are your plans? Well, I guess the next plan is to continue on. I mean, it's the old television show, The Fugitive, where the one-armed man is who the, you know, they're trying to catch. They're not going to go after the one-armed man every single episode, but you know the one-armed man is always going to be there, and at the end, they're going to get him. Well, that's kind of like what we're doing with the Bermuda Triangle. The Flight 19 will always be there, and until we find it, that will be our one-armed man. We are going to find, we're going to try to find the Mariner and Flight 19, or at least find the answers to them. But with that said, there's a whole bunch of other mysteries in this area. I mean, it's an incredibly volatile part of on Earth, whether it be natural or man-made. There's a lot of stuff that's going on there, natural occurrences. And of course, like I said, there's man-made. There's You have to remember that the Navy, the Air Force, and the Army all do a lot of testing off that coast of Florida and around Florida. So a lot of the things that people have seen as unexplained or unidentified flying objects or UAPs, as they're called now, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, could be anywhere from new aircraft technologies to electronic warfare to drones, like you may know one or two things about drones. And you know that drone warfare, well, I'm not sure about drone warfare, but drones started at the end of World War II, and they started developing as they went. And these were all top secret. So there's a lot of activity that's gone on there that could easily be misinterpreted as alien in nature. And of course, the government for security purposes probably is more than thrilled that people are thinking it's alien. Well, with that said, maybe there are aliens, but you've got to show me the evidence first. That's it. Well, what? I'm keeping an open mind. I think that's fair enough. I think that's fair enough. But what I will say, David, is that, you know, if there's a few drones out there that you need identifying, then I'll happily pack my bags, get on a boat with you and sit out off the coast of Bermuda. I'm sure it's a very hard job. I have no doubt about it. But, you know, for you, David, I'll do it. Yeah, it's taxing. It's absolutely taxing. That's one thing, as you could probably tell, we just had such a horrible trying time. I mean, some of the four-star and five-star hotels they put us in. I mean, come on. Okay, we're going to draw you to an end there, David. I don't want to hear it. I don't want 
want to hear it. But it's so good to have you back on the podcast, buddy. And Thanks. we're going to get you on again about Dieppe and your research into Dieppe. But we're going to have to get you back on to keep us updated about this ongoing search. So thank you so much for your time. Can you remind us again, what is the name of the TV show and where can we watch it? It's called Bermuda Triangle Into Cursed Waters. It's available on History Channel, whether it be History UK, History in the United States, History in Canada. It's also available, I believe, on the Crave Network and a few other streaming services that are out there. Six episodes in season one. And of course, the pilot that was done the year before is part of History's Greatest Mysteries, also on History Channel. So there you go. And that one's narrated, by the way, by Lawrence Fishburne. So yeah. That was fun. Well, if you needed any more reason to go and watch the show, then that will be the cherry on the cake. David, thank you so much for your time. You are always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks, James. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust Oleum's new Custom Spray 5 in 1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.